spend a lot of time, uh, probably I'm guessing most of us have not because we are pretty isolated from poverty, but if you spend a lot of time with, uh, with poor people, you'll know that there are different kinds of poverty. So um, even in my, the last 15 years or so, I've had the opportunity to travel all around the world in different ways, doing mission trips and speaking and some different cool things and opportunities I've had. Um, one of the things you notice, again, like in America, we tend to think of poverty, we tend, uh, especially conservatives like to think of poverty as people who are lazy. And so people who are poor are people who are lazy, who um, live off of you know the government and live off food stamps and they can't get a job because they just want to sit at home and be lazy. Now there certainly exists that kind of poverty, but that's kind of our, a lot of times when we think of poor people, we just think of people who are just... You know, just, they, have, they have no work ethic, they, they lay around on the couch, and they just live off of other people. Reality is that the majority of, at least in my experience, and as I've read about poverty and talked to, um, we work with an organization in Indianapolis called Shepherd Community Center. And what Shepherd does is they try to help alleviate or break the cycle of poverty in our city, and they do a lot of work with different poor and impoverished communities in India. And one of the things that they teach if you go through their training process is that a lot of a lot of poverty is actually the result of systemic um, oppression and kind of uh, just in, in certain kinds of injustice. And, and actually what you'll see in the Old Testament is God really talking about poverty in those terms. So God will speak out on behalf of the poor um, and, and really those who've been kind of victims of uh, the systems that, that exist that are really against um, certain groups of people. Now sometimes it's on the basis, now historically it's been on the basis of skin color. It's on the basis of you know um, just different characteristics of personhood that that are so so there are people that are, are in that kind of cycle of poverty. I remember a couple years ago um, I had never really seen this firsthand. I grew up in a fairly middle class area in Louisville, Kentucky, and um, you know there were certainly like poor people. And, and by poor people, we usually refer to poor people as like people who didn't um, have uh, who didn't wear Abercrombie and Fitch. You know, so that that was like poverty um, as we defined it as teenagers in a middle class area. And uh, it's usually defined by like your shoes, right? So we define poverty like if you had a certain kind of shoes, if you wore Jordans, you know, it's back in the 90s, if you wore Deion Sanders, if you were, you know, but if you wore like uh, British Knights, I mean, you were poor, right? So if you wore uh, these, it's all defined in kind of outward ex expression. So I remember going to um, Guatemala several years ago, and uh, we traveled down into the, the slums of Guatemala, which by any definition are, is, is one of the most impoverished areas of the world. And so there's one particular area in, in the city, in downtown, where you drive over this hill and you come down into the slums. And I don't know if you guys have been and seen this before, 
some may have gone to places like Mexico City. There's major cities, Nairobi, they all have these kind of slums. And uh, I mean, the first thing that struck me when we came over the hill and came down the hill into the slums was the smell. And it's a smell that I, to this, to this day, that I could still conjure up and I could smell this. It's some kind of a combination of uh, garbage and urine and body odor. And it's, it's like you could taste it. It's so thick. You could just taste this smell of, of really of poverty in, in this kind of really abject way. And um, so when we came down into the, over the hill, we came down, we parked, and um, the, we, we actually happened to be coming down at the time of day when the, the garbage trucks were coming down, and they would drop off the city garbage um, along. They would line the streets of the certain area of the slums with garbage. What would happen is... Um, it was literally the, the way that people drew an income. Um, again, you're talking about a dollar, two dollars, three dollars a day, sometimes a week for um, these folks' income. And the way that they would do it is these adults and their families would they would they would lead their families out, and when they would when they would throw the garbage off the truck, they would literally run and scrap and fight, and they would dive into the garbage to find anything of value, that, and then turn around and sell. And so, I mean, you know, can you know cans of coke, bottles, I mean, anything that they could salvage. To make into money, they would do it. So they would run out there and they would scramble and they would tear open the garbage and they would just, you know. And so this is the way that they, they lived and and they would, um, you know, live on a dollar, two dollars, three dollars a day or a week and 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 they so that so there's this huge garbage dump. There's a, literally a landfill, a landfill that people had um, on top of the landfill set their homes. And so they would uh, they would take these little lean-tos, like aluminum roofs and a little shanties, and they would build it on top of the garbage. So literally, about every you know several months, um, a huge rainstorm would come and would wash away this entire, and people would have to rebuild their homes again. And so we were um, taking food into the landfill, and we were taking it into these little homes. And again, when I say home, I just mean like, um, so we went into this one little corridor back in this one section of this really, the, kind of the poorest of the poor section in this, imagine that and um, there were about 10 kids in this one particular home that were in a block I mean literally just cinder blocks piled on top of each other it's about 10 by 10 that was, the, that was the house so I mean about the size of most of probably smaller than most of your bedrooms that was the house there was a grandmother that was the caretaker of these 10 children and then you know you walk in and I'm t I mean just dirt head to toe finger under the fingernails um, just the smell, it's unbelievable. There's trash piled up in the house. So not only do they live on trash, but there's trash piled up on top of the trash. And, um, and then there's all kinds of abuse, right? So I mean, there's you know, sexual abuse. Most of the children in this corridor had been sexually abused by older men who lived there who didn't have a job. And they would literally, they would rape and they would um, sexually assault these little girls and little boys. And it's just, when you see that, it's an amazing, uh, that, I think of that and I think of I mean, you know, like, we are just all crying. I mean, obviously, like, we're walking through there. I mean, grown men, big, strong men, just crying. Because you think about your own children, you think about what it's like to live in this kind of poverty. And it's poverty on a level that, so when we think of poverty here, um, it's just the homelessness. I mean, it's not even close to comparing to what we experienced in that day. And uh, that, that's what I think about when I, that's when I think about happier the poor. Happier the poor in spirit. It's the sense of helplessness and desperation. It's not about really material, because if you read the Bible, there's kind of a connection between, there seems to be a connection in the Old Testament between um, poverty and righteousness. So let me just read you a couple of verses in the Old Testament that point to this idea. Isaiah, um, excuse me, Psalm 40. 
It says that God has a heart for the poor. Psalm 4017. Uh, David's crying out. He says, As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay. Oh my God. And then over in 69, 22, I'm going to say something similar. 32 and 33, here's what David says. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. The Lord hears the needy and does not despise His own people who are prisoners. The Lord hears those who are needy, those who are poor, those who are poor. Um, and so there seems to be this connection between poverty and righteousness. So, um, but the, the key is it's not material, it's not economic necessarily, just that. But there's a sense that when you are poor, when you are trapped in a cycle of poverty where your parents are poor and your grandparents are poor and you're locked into that slum mentality, and there's, there's, there's almost no escaping that. There is, a, there is a helplessness and a despair that causes you to cry out. You are, when you are truly poor, and I, again, I'm not just talking about like, oh, I, I can't buy um, you know, the, the latest edition of Halo. I mean, that's not, that's not poverty. Um, when you are truly poor and you are truly at that level of desperation, you are crying out um, for deliverance, for rescue. That's, that's kind of the essence of what it means to be. And so it's interesting because in Isaiah 61, when he begins to talk about the kingdom, when God talks about the future kingdom that's coming, he's going to talk about it in terms of God's concern for the poor. And so um, you'll see Jesus bent towards the poor. You'll see Jesus spending time with the poor. You'll see Jesus with a, with a heart for the poor. And in Isaiah 61... One of the signs of the kingdom coming, um, when, when it says, and, and you're going to hear Jesus quote this again in the New Testament. See, he says, the spirit of the, of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to who? The poor. To bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So, all I want to say to you this morning is um, that... If we want to be blessed, if we want to live out the kingdom life, we've got to learn to cultivate a sense of being poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit is to be spiritually bankrupt. It's to have that sense of desperation and helplessness where you know that you bring nothing to the table in terms of your relationship with God. Now, let's be honest. This is difficult. It's difficult because we live in a culture that is, um, that is obsessed with self-esteem. We live in a culture that is obsessed with self-esteem. We don't want anybody to feel uh, broken. We want everybody to feel like um, they are self-assured, self-confident, self-made, self-created, um, you know, just self-reliant. And so we live in a culture that is unbelievably, probably more so than any of any in modern history, obsessed with puffing us up and making us feel better about, our, about ourselves. So um, you're, you're a snowflake, you're special, you know, um, we don't, I mean, literally in some school districts in, in uh, areas on the West Coast, they're not even given grades anymore in elementary school because they don't want anybody to feel bad about um, getting a bad grade. Now, some of you are going, I would like to be in that school, right? Um, but they are literally not giving grades, so everybody gets a trophy, you know, it's there, it's like a big thing. Everybody gets a trophy, so my uh, six-year-old gets like a huge trophy, no matter if he's awful or if he's awesome at soccer, he gets a trophy. Now, I'm for trophies, I like trophies, but we just live in this culture that's obsessed with making us kind of feel good about ourselves and kind of having a, having a positive self-esteem, and yet, um, in the Bible, what it's going to call us to is this kind of sense of self-awareness that we are, not, um, we are not great, that we are not awesome, that we, we need to be cultivating this, this poverty of spirit. 
this this understanding that we are broken and that we are we are in need of God. And I and I can give you all kinds of examples from Abraham to Moses to Jacob to David to Job, different men and women who um, who had a sense of their own brokenness before God. But that one particular example that stands out to me is a guy named William Carey. William Carey was um, he was a missionary to India long, uh, in the 19th century, early 19th century, and he left the comforts of uh, Britain. He was a shoemaker, and he left because he just had a heart for India. And so um, many people actually regard William Carey as kind of the father of modern missions. And so he left his kind of shoemaking craft, he was a cobbler, to go um, basically give his life away to the Hindus. And um, William Carey's a guy, I mean, an amazing guy, a brilliant man. He translated the Bible into something like 30 different languages okay, by himself, just in like, a, like an elementary education. And he taught himself Greek. He taught himself Hebrew. He taught himself Latin. He taught himself languages of India, uh, Bengali, and these different languages. And he went and he started a Bible college for pastors. And he began to raise up and train up pastors. He, um, again, he translated the New Testament into a number of different languages. And what's amazing, he actually was, a, was an advocate. He was a guy who fought for social justice. And he especially despised the practice. There was a practice um, in, in Hindu culture because they had the caste system. And so there was a kind of a socioeconomic um, stratification of people into layers depending on your birth. So if you were born into a family of nobility, you enjoyed a certain class. If you were born into a, an impoverished family, I mean, there was no way to break out of that system. And one of the things that they would do, particularly in the, in the poor classes, is they would, um, when your husband died, they would burn the widows on a, on a funeral pyre. So they would build up a, a, a funeral pyre, which is just kind of a, a stick, like, kind of like the fire there at night. Like that would be kind of, you put a platform in that, and they would literally tie the women down to the funeral pyre, and they would burn them alive. Like for in centuries, this was, a, this was a commonly accepted practice. So when your husband died, because a woman was like a dog, and so you were kind of the lowest of lows, so when your husband died, you basically lost all sense of identity, and so they would burn you alive. It's pretty harsh. So William Carey actually fought against that and actually abolished the practice of burning widows in Hindu culture in India. But it was interesting because this man who was such a brilliant guy, um, he wrote out his own tombstone. Okay, so um, he, he wrote his own epitaph that went on his funeral, uh, headstone after he died. And here's what his, here's what his headstone read. He said, William Carey, born August 17th, 1761, died June 9th, 1834. Um, and, and here's what he said about himself. A wretched, poor, and helpless worm on thy kind arms I fall. That was his epitaph. He said, a wretched, poor, and helpless worm on thy kind eyes I fall. This is a guy who was poor in spirit. He understood that he was nothing but a worm. And that if it were not for the grace of God, he would be nothing. And he said, now to God's kind arms I fall. So how do, we, how do we do this? I just want to give you a couple practical things. How do we cultivate in ourselves a sense of poverty and spirit. Let me just tell you a couple things that I think that we need to be in the, in the practice of doing to remind ourselves about our state before God and then to, to really find ourselves caught up in the grace and the mercy of Christ. Okay, four, um, four things. One, um, stop comparing yourselves to other people. Stop comparing yourselves to other people. We are a, a people who love to compare ourselves to others. And you know what's crazy about when you compare yourself to other people, when you compare yourself to others around you? is we tend to always compare our strengths against other people's weaknesses. Do we not? And so when we look at ourselves, in order to prop ourselves up and to have a healthy sense of self-esteem, 
we find the weaknesses of those around us. And then in order to make ourselves appear superior to other people, we compare our strong points against others' weaknesses. So we look around and we say, well, um, you know, look, man, he just has a mouth. And he has this crate. And, and, and then, you know, so we're strong there. We don't, maybe our struggle isn't our mouth. Maybe our struggle is gossip. But we don't, want to, we don't want to compare ourselves to other people. And so we, you know, we find the worst part of somebody else, and then we compare ourselves. And, of course, we always come up you know, superior to them. And so we are constantly looking around trying to establish a pecking order, and we compare ourselves to other people so that at the end of that process, we come out on top and we come out feeling a sense of superiority and righteousness. Not, that comes, not, not coming from our relationship with God, but purely on the basis of those around us. And so um, we need to get in that, the habit of stopping comparing ourselves to other people. Stop looking around and saying, well, he does this and I don't do this, or she does this and I don't do this, and I'm better than them because I don't do this. And you know, I, and so man, everybody has different struggles. Everybody has different struggles. And so stop comparing yourself to other people. Um, and, and then secondly, be honest with yourself. Be honest with yourself. One of the ways that we can be honest with ourselves is to use the Bible as our standard and not, um, not be looking around at other people. So the Bible will say about itself that it's like a mirror. And when you hold up a mirror, um, there's, there's no escaping what's in that mirror. What's in the mirror is what's in the mirror. So um, the Bible says that we need to actually take the mirror of the Word and to hold it up to ourselves and then to actually look at ourselves and to be honest with ourselves. And I know that's difficult sometimes to look out into our heart and to look into that wickedness and the brokenness and to be honest, but to stop deceiving ourselves and to look into our hearts and to say, what, what, who am I before God? Who am I before God? To remind ourselves that we are broken, that we are sinful, and to hold the mirror up and to see, like, where are my struggles? Where do I fall short? Where, do, where, where are some areas where I need to grow in? And to not just be deceiving ourselves. And so be honest with ourselves about where we are and where we stand and stop comparing ourselves to those around us. And there's some freedom in being honest. To, to stop pretending that you're somebody that you're not. Right? We've talked about that a lot. To not try to be somebody else, to not try to fulfill somebody else's expectations, but to honestly look at who we are and to stop comparing ourselves. So that's, those are the first steps to be important in spirit, to understand like William Carey did, that man, I'm a, I'm a worm and I know that before God, and really I'm nothing. I'm, I'm, like, I'm like dew on the grass. That's what the Bible says about us. I mean, the dew on the grass that was there this morning is gone. I mean, you don't even get a morning. Like before the end of the morning, you're gone. We're like a vapor, we're like a mist. It just, it, it, it clears out quickly. So to have that perspective on yourself, it meant, I'm not awesome. I'm not all that. I'm not God's gift to humanity. That I, I've got issues and I need to be honest about those things. Um, three, when we're confronted with that reality of who we are before God, um, the third thing that we need to do is to grieve, to learn to grieve over our sin. So we, we stop comparing, we're honest with ourselves, and then we learn to, to grieve. Um, the, the next verse after being uh, when it says um, happy are you who are poor in spirit um, for years of the kingdom then it immediately says blessed are those or happy are those who mourn that's, that's the idea that when you're actually confronted with your sinfulness and the patterns and the behaviors that are kind of off kilter um, what we do is we don't glory in those things we don't we don't um, we don't just go well that's just who I am you know that's just who I am that's the way that God made me that's the way my parents are that's the way that I'm going to be it actually says that we need to take the next step and grieve. The Bible will actually say that there's a season for everything. There's a season to be happy and there's a season to mourn. Um, in the Bible, um, there are different points in time when you see um, people actually literally take on physical symbols to, to symbolize their sickness and their grief over their sin. They'll get what they call dust and ashes. 
And so they'll get down and they'll put on sackcloth and they'll cover themselves with dust and ashes. They would literally, literally take dust and wipe it on their face as kind of a physical, uh, tangible demonstration of their grief over their sin. And then I just have to always ask myself, like, when was the last time that I felt that way over my sin? When was the last time I cried or I was grieved or I was um, just physically ill over my sinful? I mean, I don't get that way a lot. I don't get that way about anything. And I certainly don't get that way a lot about my sin. And so sometimes, you know what? It's good to just have a good cry. It's good just to feel broken. It's good to grieve. Because grief, again, um, causes us to press into God and to, to have that power of the Spirit. So, um, and I just want to encourage you guys, some of us this week, the best thing that you can do is just spend some time grieving over your sin. Understanding that your sin grieves the heart of God. And that God doesn't take those things lightly. And so a lot of times we take ourselves way too seriously and we take God way too lightly. And we need to take ourselves a little bit more lightly and to take God a lot more seriously. And understand that our sin is an offense against God that agrees the heart of God. And then finally, um, we need to cast ourselves on the mercy of God. So after we understand who we are in light of who God is, we need to learn to just cast ourselves on the grace of God. We cast ourselves on the mercy of God and we realize that, man, apart from Him, we are nothing. Apart from His grace, apart from His work in us, so we don't get depressed, we don't get despairing, we don't, we don't just get down into the pit and stay there because we're worms, because you know before God we're, we're just, and we're broken. So we don't allow it to lead us into depression, into a cycle of despair. We say, no, man, man if it weren't for God, then I, I'd do nothing. And then we cast ourselves on His mercy. Let me just show you an example of this, and we'll, we'll close up. Romans chapter 7. Paul, I think, really shows us what this looks like. And I, I love this. It's probably my favorite chapter of the Bible. Uh, starting in verse 18, Paul writes, um, he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me. There's that reality of being honest with myself and saying, I know if I look down into my heart, if I really lay my head down on my pillow and I'm really honest with myself, I know that there's nothing good in me. That I'm not awesome. That I'm not, uh, you know, God isn't just happy to have me on his team because I bring something to the table. That there's a reality that, you know what, I bring nothing good to the table. That there's nothing inside of me except for evil and wickedness. He says that it's in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Can anybody relate to that? And I want to do what's right, but I just find myself not over and over again doing what's right. But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And that gives me a lot of comfort. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. So even this week, as we're beginning to make decisions to move towards righteousness, to move towards Jesus, what happens? Evil begins to come in and snatch that up. And, and bitterness and anger and these things begin to come to the surface where somebody begins to kind of press on us and make us, you know, just... So it's right there at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members Wretched man that I am. There's that confession. Just like William Carey, man. Wretched man that I am. Pulled in all these different directions. And now I feel horrible about it. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Happy are the poor in spirit. 
Happy are those who understand their brokenness, who understand their need for God, who understand their absolute powerlessness to draw close to God and to be right with God based on our actions. But happy are those who mourn, who grieve over their sin, who have a sense and an awareness that, man, I am desperate for God, who then, as a result of that, cast themselves on the mercy of God, finding their strength, finding their power, finding their hope, finding their righteousness nowhere else other than Jesus Christ. Let's pray to you. Father, thank you for your word. God, I pray that you would help us to cultivate in our hearts a sense of an awareness of our need for you. God, help us not to trust in our own righteousness. Help us not to trust in the opinions of other people. Help us not to read our own press clippings to think that we're better than we are just because we're good moral people who don't murder, who don't steal, who don't do these spectacular things. God, help us to see in our hearts root sins like bitterness and anger and ungratefulness and gossip and slander these things that just pull at us. And God, thank you for your mercy, for your grace, for your grace. And God, I pray that today that we would be people who cast ourselves on your mercy and find our identity in your forgiveness, your love, your grace towards us in Jesus Christ. I pray these things in an awesome name. Amen.